You are listening to the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And on this, the 41st episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, we're talking about Johann Pachelbel and his Magnificat Fugue. You probably don't recognize this piece that we're looking at this week, but we know you've heard of Pachelbel, famous for his canon in D. And though this piece is his most famous now, he really left a mark on music history with his sacred works in his keyboard music, and that is specifically what we'll be taking a look at today with his Magnificat Fugue. Pachelbel himself was born in 1653 in the town of Nuremberg, Germany, and thus was a member of the early to mid-Baroque period. So recall that Johann Sebastian Bach's death in 1750 was about a hundred years after Pachelbel's birth, and that marks the official end of Baroque period. Pachelbel was an intellectual from early life, often attending public lectures in addition to normal schooling, and of course taking a keen interest in music, taking composition lessons early on with G.C. Wecker. In 1670, Pachelbel was awarded a hefty scholarship to attend the Gymnasium Poeticum in Regensburg to advance his musical skills. His teacher there, Caspar Prince, encouraged him to investigate the musical writings of the time's leading Italian composers. After his schooling, Pachelbel was a sought-after keyboardist, but not yet well-known as a composer. He spent a brief time in the great Germanic music hub of Vienna, but by 1677 he was the official court organist for the court of Eisenach. Unfortunately, his time there at Eisenach was short-lived, as the brother of his patron, Prince Johann, died. During the mourning period, there was little need for the court musicians, and Pachelbel must have surely felt his talents going to waste. But a letter of recommendation from the court Kapellmeister was prepared, and it apparently praised him as being a, quote, perfect and rare virtuoso. His next job he held for 12 years, and it seemed like a really wonderful gig. He was the organist for the Protestant Predigerkirche at Erfurt, and his job contract basically required him to become the very best organist he could possibly be. As though he wasn't already. He had to compose and perform weekly accompaniments to church chorales. He was to be reassessed for growth and progress each year, and during this assessment he had to present original organ compositions that showed off both the instrument and his own skills. And though these might have seemed like demanding challenges, he remained in the post for 12 years. So he was obviously very good at meeting these criteria. And it definitely helped advance his skills even more, which means he was being paid to improve himself. I think that really does sound like a top-notch kind of job. Now, during his time here in Erfurt, Pachelbel became associated with the great Bach family, specifically Ambrosius, who you might recall as Johann Sebastian's father. He was so close to the family, in fact, that Pachelbel was made the godfather of J.S.'s sister, Johanna Judith, and the teacher of J.S.'s older brother, Johann Christoph, and even later J.S. himself. After his 12 years of employment in Erfurt, it seems Pachelbel himself wanted a change and resigned, 
He had many jobs in the following years, but due to unusual circumstances, for example, in one instance the French army invaded, <laughs> uh, he didn't hold any of these posts for very long. In 1695, Pachelbel's first teacher, G.C. Vecker, died. He had been the organist in Nuremberg, and now that position was empty. The city extended an invitation to the job to Pachelbel, which he accepted. It was a grand and celebrated homecoming, the great composer Pachelbel coming back to grace his hometown with his beautiful skills. And he was just as busy with composition and teaching back in Nuremberg as he had been in Erfurt, and it is from this job position that today's Magnificat Fugue comes from, and also his famed canon. He stayed in this post for 11 more years, until his death in 1706. So let's look at this Magnificat Fugue. The fugue we're looking at specifically today is actually just catalog number T103, and it's just one out of 95 pieces that together make up the set of the Magnificat Fugues. And these are really interesting compositions, as they were apparently written to accompany church services, which isn't something that we normally would think of a fugue being a part of, at least when we think of, like, J.S. Box fugues. So many scholars have looked into how these pieces may have been used in the service, and it seems like they were to be played in the background as the sermon was intoned, rather than as an accompaniment as Pachelbel's chorales would have been used. So, fugues. We've talked a little bit about them here on the Coffee House before, as they're sometimes used in the development sections of other types of works, However, I'm not sure that we've gone really into how a fugue is written, because they do have very specific formulae. Allison, why don't you break us off a piece of what makes up a fugue? Alright, so the most structured section is the exposition, and there are a few specific parts that make up this section as a whole. We start off with a simple statement of what we call the subject, and this is the primary melody that the rest of the fugue will be based around, and it's usually playable by just one hand and usually doesn't have chords. We'll also hear that the first note is the tonic note of whatever key we're in. In this case, we're in D melodic minor, so the first note is D. And then by the end of the melody, it's all wrapped back around to that same starting pitch. And after this first statement of the subject, we have what's called the answer. The answer is exactly the same as the subject, but is usually written in interval of a fifth above the subject. So in this case of the Magnificat, instead of starting on D like the subject, the answer begins on A, but all the pitch relations, seconds, third, fourth, etc., that made the original melody will still be present exactly. The voice, or hand, since it's the keyboard, that started with the subject will also play what's called a counter-subject that now harmonizes with the new answer. It's then common to find a little bridge section that modulates through an upward pattern sequence. Now, depending on how many voices Pachelbel wanted in his fugue, this section could either modulate back to our D minor that we started with so that we can have another voice enter with our original subject, or he could stick with just two voices and simply restate the answer and counter subject a few more times. And that's the route that he's chosen to take in this case.
so this now brings us to the next major section of a fugue, simply called aptly the middle section. <laughs> in the middle section, there is a virtuosic decoration based on the subject, but periodically there are reintroductions of the subject in various keys, and each time we hear the main subject again, it's now called an episode. So, for example, in this section, we hear all of the free parts kind of just tootling around, and then suddenly we hear this familiar subject matter come back to the fore once again. And then, when we finally reach an episode that is back in our tonic key of D minor, we know that we've reached the last section of the fugue called, very astutely, the final section. And this part brings us to the end of the piece with a coda, which presents material that's similar to our counter subject, but is actually unique writing just for this part of the piece. And it also ends with a strong cadence with the dominant five chord that resolves to tonic, here played simply on unison octave Ds. So there you have it, a basic fugue form. Of course, each composer does slightly different things, but the fugue itself remains fairly constant. There's so much going on in a fugue, and there's so much that you can hear as a listener, that it's hard to imagine it comes from these very simple rules and structures. Now, you might find yourself asking, a fugue has several things that come back and forth, and it's restated <laughs> ever and over again. How, Allison, is this different from a canon or round? And that's a very good question. You've noticed how in the fugue, part of the form is to have one voice come in with a statement, and then another voice comes in later with that statement again. And this is indeed similar to a canon. However, the big difference is the complexity of the entrances and the harmonic structure of the whole piece. For the entrances, in the fugue, the subject or answer is never written in two voices at one time. It's only ever written along with a counter subject in the background or other free material. And the counterpoint complexity is built that way with the subject and a harmonization, essentially. In the canon, however, every new entrance is layered over the previous one. So though we get complex counterpoint, that kind of counterpoint sort of writes itself because it's just the same material over and over again. Importantly, the harmonic structure of a canon is also different than that of a fugue. One of the big takeaways from fugue form is that every time we hear the subject, it has gone through modulation. So the whole piece jumps from key to key to key to key to key all the time. <laughs> but when we listen to Paco Bell's canon, notice that it's in the same key the whole way through, and that the bass line we hear at the beginning could be traced unaltered throughout the whole piece, which is why it's so much fun to play. <laughs> and now an interesting point that we just touched on is fugue complexity. And this particular fugue is actually a really great example of that complex nature. The subject itself incorporates a lot of movement, which can be tricky to match with a counter subject. And so what do we really mean by match with a counter subject? So we really mean, do the resulting harmonies follow the rules of the musical theory of counterpoint? 
To explain every detail about counterpoint would take months, as any student <laughs> yes. of counterpoint can attest to, but in general, to please Baroque sensibilities of what sounded good, there could only be certain intervals played together, and certain intervals spanned within each voice, and the more movement you have in a line, the more difficult it is to stick to all those criteria. But just listen to how perfect Pachelbel's intervals sound throughout the whole piece. It really just all sounds pleasant. So to write a good fugue melody is kind of like solving a mind teaser puzzle. In fact, there are many melodies that were written by Baroque masters that are still used in counterpoint classes today to trick students into learning the rules. But why were there rules? Well, <laughs> to quote a very famous pirate captain, they're more like guidelines anyway. <laughs> but it all has to do with the Baroque culture and what people thought sounded nice. So it was popular to have music sound a certain way, so if a composer wanted to be popular, he would follow the guidelines. And it was the disregard for these guidelines later in the era that brought about stylistic change. So this fugue is admittedly only a two-voice fugue, and that might not sound as exciting as, say, the four-voice fugues of Bach later. But keep in mind a few factors. Pachelbel was writing during the Middle Baroque, when the rules were well-established, but the boundaries weren't being pushed yet. That honor really got to go to the next generations of musicians to which J.S. Bach belonged, and those musicians were the extremists of the era. Bach was able to live with the idea that you have to know the rules in order to break them, so with him we hear a lot more questionable harmonies that are really what make his music so beloved. But Pachelbel shouldn't be discounted for living by the rules, because he was truly a master of his craft during the time period, and without his Baroque perfection, we would not have the boundary pushers that came after him. So, I hope that you have seen that Pachelbel really did write more than just his one hit, as we like to think of it. He really was a prolific composer, very important during the Baroque era. Not a one-hit wonder, indeed. <laughs> so if you have enjoyed this episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, know that we too are not a one-hit wonder, and that we have a large backlog of episodes just waiting for your ears. And consider sending them to your friends and family to share in the excitement of music and leaving us a review on iTunes or on Google Play. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast... I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Magnificat Fugue T103 was performed by Marco Alejandro Gil Estiva. The Canon in D was performed by the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. You can subscribe to The Coffee House through iTunes or Google Play. For the latest episode updates, like us on Facebook. You can also share episode links with your friends. You can email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.